0: Box. You opened it. We came. It's just a puzzle box. Oh no. It is a means to summon us. Welcome to Filmstrip's Hellraiser series. Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some. Angels
1: to others.
0: Featuring Nick. Come
1: to daddy.
0: And Jay.
1: This is it. The old homestead.
0: These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the thoughts, characters, and details of the Hellraiser films. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering.
1: Welcome to Filmstrip. What's your pleasure, sir? I'm Jay.
0: I'm your daddy.
1: (laughs) If you haven't figured it out yet, folks, this is our review of Hellraiser. Starring Andrew Robinson, Claire Higgins, Sean Chapman, Ashley Lawrence, and Doug Bradley. Written and directed by Clive Barker, released in 1987 on a paltry $1 million budget, grossed over $14 million at the box office, and launched a horror franchise at the late 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s. So, it's 2014,
0: Nick. Uh, why are we starting the year out with Hellraiser? Oh, uh, why not? I say it's almost every time you ask that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I wanted to get back into horror. I mean, we did a lot of Stephen King stuff, but in a way, we haven't really delved into, like, the horror genre, unless it's really, you know, like... I don't know. I just It's a movie I've wanted to do for a while. It's a movie that's kind of been something i've seen where i was a kid kind of grew up with and something i really wanted to revisit i haven't seen this movie probably in about eight years i think the last time i saw this was when i started dating my wife and she kind of wanted to see this because she never saw it and i don't know, just something i kind of wanted to discuss with you
1: Well, you know, I'm glad you brought it up because we've done a lot of series here. I mean, you and I started out on a horror series. We did the two Blair Witch films back a a few Octobers ago now, and then we've done Aliens, which is a sci-fi horror film franchise. I mean, it's partially horror, at least. And that fourth one is horrible, along with the Requiem film. And
0: Man, then,
1: yeah. And then we I mean we've done Tremors, we did Terror Vision, we've done Critter.
0: Okay, okay, take it back. We've done horror movies, but I don't think we've done like a straight, straight up horror movie.
1: Well, well you know what? We haven't done a, a straight up horror franchise, and you're right about that. And I think sometimes and I will say it's a misnomer. This gets categorized as, you know, another slasher series and it's it's anything but, but it gets put in the same pantheon as Friday the thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, all that kind of stuff. And I I think it's an interesting one for us to do too. I've seen the first Hellraiser and the third one before doing this retrospective with you so i'm really as new as you can get to that and and around here that's hard to find so if you can find a horror franchise that i haven't seen multiple times on in multiple formats that's always a fun thing to bring up on the show and so you brought this to me and i said yeah you know what why not let's take a look at hellraiser and that's what we're here to do so now you've actually read the book the novella that this is based on correct
0: yeah the hellbound heart uh for all intents and purposes, it's essentially the same story. The only main differences is that uh, Kirsty is not his daughter in the book. It's actually a girl who, um, well, Larry, uh, Larry's the father in the movie. It's actually he's Rory in the book, and Kirsty is not Rory's daughter. Uh, Kirsty is someone who's in kind of in love or has a crush on Rory throughout the book. So those that, that's 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 really the only two big changes is just the name. The fact that Christie's just a female love interest, and the ending is a little bit different too. This, as far as the Cenobites uh, never decide to attack Christie, they kind of just give her the laminate object and just say, "Hey, hold on to this for us." It it, it flushes it, it flushes out Frank's uh, Frank's character a little bit more in the beginning, as far as what he has uh. to do to get the box, but it's essentially the same story. Okay, well, I'll be curious
1: to read that and just just to have it, I guess, in in my head somewhere along the way. But, uh, you know, this movie, though, I mean, it has a definite following and a definite reputation. I think one of the reasons I avoided this when I was in my big horror phase and this was in that time I was watching a lot of horror movies, I just didn't. I didn't really get it. I'd look at the box of it and I was like, that just doesn't look like, I don't really, that guy doesn't look like he's, what's he going to do? Take the pins out and stab people with them. I didn't really get it. And when I read the back of it, I don't think I really understood what it <laughs> was trying to say. And it's probably a good thing. I didn't see this when it, when it came out. It's a little, it's a little, it works on a different level. I mean, it's a different kind of film for sure. And so I, I'm, I just never went back to this one and I'll confess now. It's only been a few years ago that I actually went back and saw this first one. Um, and then I saw the third one, and that's another story when we get around to, to that one. But I, I had never seen any of them but this first one, and I kind of went back to it on purpose to to see it because I felt like this is one of those things I need to go back and see now, having seen all the other stuff I, I've i seen in my life. So it's, it's fun to go back to.
0: I mean, this is almost like guerrilla filmmaking in a way. I mean, it is extremely low budget, but for what it is, it is extremely well done, and I guess we'll kind of get into it as we talk about the movie. So instead of talking some more about this, why don't you uh, give us the plot, Jay? All right, as best I can,
1: I can tell. Uh, It's about a man named Frank in search of new carnal pleasures who purchases a mysterious puzzle box um, somewhere, I guess, over in the Far East. Anyway, he comes back home to England and fixes the puzzles on the box and opens it up only to discover that he's unlocked a door to a hell dimension. He's pulled into this dimension where the inhabitants known as Cenobites push him over the fine line between pain and pleasure, ripping him apart with chains and hooks. Sometimes later, Frank's brother Larry and his wife Julia move into the house, and while moving to bed, Larry cuts his hand and some of his blood spills on the attic floor, and Frank returns in near-skeletal form. With the help of his sister-in-law and paramour Julia, Frank begins sucking the life out of bodies of men she brings to him in order to regenerate his old form. Meanwhile, Larry's daughter from a previous marriage, Kirsty, begins to suspect her hated stepmother of having an affair. And to her horror, she learns of the Cenobites and offers to give them Frank, who escaped, in Exchange for her own freedom. Frank eventually kills Larry and wears his skin temporarily, fooling Kirsty. But she soon figures out the truth. He accidentally stabs Julia and then chases Kirsty to the attic to kill her. The Cenobites appear and ensnare him in their chains and tear him to pieces. Then they attempt to abduct Kirsty, but ripping the puzzle box from Julia's dead hands, Kirsty defeats the Cenobites by reversing the motions needed to open the puzzle box, sending them away in bursts of electricity. And her boyfriend conveniently shows up and helps her escape the house. Kirsty throws the box into a fire only to see a vagrant who's been lurking around in the shadows the whole movie retrieve the box before turning into like a winged dragon and flying away. The box ends up in the hands of the merchant who sold it to Frank and who is prepared to sell it to another
0: customer. And that's about as good as I could sum up Hellraiser for you there. I think you did a pretty good job for what it is. I mean, it, it is it is a pretty straightforward movie, but it is extremely weird, I guess you could say. I mean, weird in a good way is what I'm going to say. Um, I just think, like, just, just the entire theme of this movie is not what you think. I mean, you are talking earlier kind of how this pinhead is kind of like the poster child for the Hellraiser series, and he is, and that he's kind of, like, categorized with Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, Leatherface, Michael Myers, and it's really, when you watch this first movie, it's anything but, and I think when you get into the whole theme of this movie, it's not slasher or killing. It's just this bizarre sadomasochism film. I mean, it's all about just, like, SNM pain sex. I mean, it's almost like when you look at like the first alien movie, the whole sexual imagery of that movie is very, very strong. And it's the same thing with this movie. It's very like whole plot is very sexualized. It's been I mean, that's oh. what it's all about. I mean, you get into your you know, your first character who is the bad guy of the movie. It's not Pinhead.
1: He's just an evil force in this, is what he is. He's I mean, he's barely he's, in it. But, matter but, fact, but is he even evil? Well, he, I mean, well, yeah, he is. Because I mean, he, he rules the hell dimension, but but Hey, what but is he, it? Hell is it? Well, hell? yeah, because I think they even call it out as such. But here's the thing: is he is just a a force that was brought about by this, you know, puzzle box or whatever. That's the thing. Is and and should be noted: he's not even named in it. He's just called the lead Cenobite in the thing. Like they didn't come up with that name; that was named by the fans later, and then they you know ran with it. But yeah, he's just. I mean, all of them are are just forces, malevolent forces in the whole film. You're right. Frank is the bad guy and Julia, I guess you'd say, uh, you know, I almost did the plot summary that it was about this serial killer woman and her lover who had fantasies of drinking blood and running away together. Cause in, in an alternate reality, that's what this movie is. <laughs> but, uh, but it's really, it is kind of straightforward for what it is. Let's talk about these characters here. And I want to start with the family. Let's start with Larry, Andrew Robinson. I know this guy, from so many things in the 70s and 80s. He was the original bad guy in the Dirty Harry films. I don't know if you remember that or not, but he's I've the... seen them. Oh, well, okay, that settles another... <laughs> I just gave he, you another idea. Yeah, yeah, you did, and I'm going to drag you through those. But uh, it's, it's a shorter trip than Hellraiser, I can promise you that. But anyway, he was in that. He was also in one of my favorite cheesy Stallone films called Cobra. He's just one of these character actors, been around a long time. But I like this guy because – and this is the thing I'm going to ask you. Is this supposed to be in England? Is that what we're supposed to
0: believe? I think so. It's really never explained where it is. I mean, Julia has an English accent, but I don't know. I really – Some really of the catch... other others do, but like
1: all their friends are Americans. And I don't know. It's I can't really place where this is. But there's things that let me know that this is supposed to be – not America. And because Clive Barker's English, it's I think it's supposed to be set in the UK. That's what I get. But the point is, Larry is supposed to be like our successful Yank, right? Who's who's come overseas. He's moved his family to be closer to, I guess, where she's from and to get a new start and things like that. And he's not a bad guy, but he's just sort of your 80s
0: schmuck, right? Yeah, he's kind of your, he's your yuppie. He's your 80s yuppie. I mean, that's what he is. I mean, he's, He's kind of a boring character in a way. I mean, but he's supposed to be. I mean, he's supposed to be kind of like the quintessential guy who's kind of all about his career and doesn't really have much personality outside his job. And you can kind of tell with his relationship with Julia that she's very much bored with him as being a husband. Like, right. he's just kind of a... Straight by the numbers, you know, probably drives like, you know, probably drives a BMW and wears Dockers every day. You know, it's like he's (laughs) not, he's not, he's not, but but he probably eats the same turkey sub every day for lunch. I mean, he's just very predictable.
1: I think you've hit it there. He's predictable. But uh, you know one thing about him, he's a good guy for the most part because he really cares about his daughter. He wants her to, you come live with us. And she's like, no, I'm going to kind of do it on my own and all this stuff. And he's, I don't know, you can tell he's trying to reconnect with her after, her mom died and now he's, you know, he's remarried and clearly, you know, it's the, the old trope of the stepmom and the daughter don't get along.
0: Right. They never do. <laughs> I can, I, I, I can, I can be, I can tell you that right now. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: that that's just how that works so in, in, in films and often in real life, like you said. So it's cool. I don't know. I liked him. I think he's, he's supposed to be our end because he's somebody we can relate with if you're, if you're looking for a, a male character you can like, because Frank is completely unrelatable as if, to most of us, as we'll get to. And Kirsty, I, I guess she's there for the teenage audience this was made for, maybe. Or maybe it wasn't made for, I don't know. But
0: See, I thought I, I took it in the beginning that Larry was the end, but then it's kind of like, I think through the halfway point, Kirsty becomes our character. I think they do a little bit of a switch. Yeah, and I want to talk
1: about that when it happens. I'm with you. I do think they switch it over. But I, I don't know. I kind of liked Larry. Now, we've talked about his wife, Julia, british doesn't get along with her stepdaughter and as i said in the plot summary there she's frank's secret lover and I've, i gotta tell you this movie is ripe with these sepia tone flashback scenes and i gotta tell you that's one of the cheesiest like seductions i've ever seen <laughs> the man
0: standing at the oh, page. you didn't like it like he's standing there in the rain and he's he's all like got the the wet hair hanging down and like he just kind of like very like nonchalant just like let me in and stuff and just you know, takes the knife and cuts off her bra and everything. I, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is it is completely, like, something so cheesy out of, like, one of those, like, romance novels with Fabio <laughs> on the cover. I mean, not that I've ever read <laughs> anything like that, Jay, but yeah, <laughs> it, that's, that's what I imagine it's like. It's, like, one of these, like, weird, like, middle-aged housewife fantasies or something like Twi- that. Twilight? Twilight?
1: <laughs> <Don't> yeah, <me. laughs> yeah.
0: You know, four, we'll call it Forty Shades of Frank. <laughs> I don't know about the switchblade, but yeah, the scene's about right. So Yeah, I don't know about maybe the switchblade, so. man. You pull out a <laughs> knife on a girl, and I think... Or maybe, was... maybe
1: Julia likes it rough. I don't know, because the thing is... She, like... She's kind of mannish, though,
0: dude. I will say
1: that right now. I, I... First things first, though, about Julia, okay? I have to ask you a question. Is she a sociopath at heart or is she coerced into murder because of love? Because at one point in the film, I think you can make an argument for either direction.
0: When you see her in the flashback, she's kind of comes off as a completely different character. Right. And and I, and I think, you know, maybe just like Frank kind of poisoned her in a way, maybe changed her. Maybe this like, you know, one night of lust that they had completely changed her where like she like almost like a heroin addict in a way where it's like you know you're a meth addict where you just do it and all suddenly you're, you're just you're hooked you know yeah that's how i kind of took it and like i think all also like going back to the you know the the turkey and mayo larry you know <laughs> <laughs> where it's just like very boring and she had this like one night of passion with like this bad boy and i think that kind of what changed her is that she wanted that again she she got a little bit of that sugar that maybe she's always wanted her whole life and she wants more and i think that That's kind of what changed her, because when she was, like, you know, let Frank in, I mean, she was very, like, proper and nice and everything, and then you see her throughout, you know, present day or during the present time of this movie, and she's just got this scowl on her face. It's just, like, she looks pissed off.
1: Well, she she's definitely a deep burn of anger, that's for sure. And I think the thing about Julia is, and you hit on it, is that Frank gave her a taste of something. And I, having watched this now a few times, I kind of take the reason that maybe she was so for going ahead with this move was she knew it was Frank's house or a place where he had stayed before and she could be... Around his presence or it would be somewhere where he probably would frequent and we get the idea that Larry works a lot and maybe, you know, she's going to have time to rekindle the flames or something. I mean, she goes up to that, that attic, you know, kind of looking for him and at or because they've found, you know, where he was squatting or whatever before he was torn apart that they don't know about yet, and you know, she's up there just kind of trying to, you know, sniff in his essence or something. It's very weird. I mean, it's a different kind of character, but I think she becomes, or I think she has a dark side that he has somehow or another unlocked in her. And boy, I tell you, she's a vicious one, though, man. She's a serious lady killer. I mean, she you know picks up dudes at the bar, and then you know they're back at her house. She hits them with a hammer and that's how she kills them all. I was I I think the thing that I was most surprised about this was how Julia has the most kills in
0: the film. She's just like this murderous woman throughout mm-hmm. the whole thing and like She's a complete seductress, and I don't even know how, man. I mean, I'm just going to – maybe it's mean to say it, but she's not very attractive, man. She's very mannish. Okay. Well,
1: she, she's she got – well, Was she 80s attractive, 80s, man? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say this. I, having grown up in the 80s, watched a lot of films in the 80s, she was attractive for that time period. Like the way her hair was all done and everything like that, She w- she would have – yeah, the shoulder, all of it. She would have been an attractive lady. Claire Higgins would have would have sold tickets based on that appeal. So yeah, I I get that, and I, you know I I I mean it's a different time, no doubt. If they recast it today, it would be a different world. But she comes off more like if if I can make a comparison, it'd be like if you put Meg Ryan in a movie and had her do this kind of stuff. That's kind of who she. Acts like a lot, and I—that's what's sort of unsettling about—is she just looks like the dapper British wife, right, and and stepmom, but she well, she's like Mary Poppins' evil twin, you know. I mean, she
0: yeah, She's definitely is She's got that Mary Poppins thing. But I'll take your word for the '80s attract. I mean, you're 20 years older than me, Jay. So you grew up during that time. I'm not that much older than you. <laughs> okay, 15, 15. I was just a little pup back then, man. I I base I don't know. I based my tr- practice off a, what I grew up with guess like the watch or something, I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's talk about Frank, because we kind of talked around him here or whatever. Bad boy Frank, right? I mean, the first thing, I did not believe for one second that that was Sean Chapman's voice coming out of that dude. I was like, no way, that is not the same guy. And everything I have read is, yep, that's his real voice. And that they, they, the-
0: they had to have modified it, though, some way, because it was much deeper and grave, you know, gra- like... Just like it's probably de- it like or something it it's just was definitely like- a d r like there's some there's some
1: effect done on the end of it, but it's pretty amazing how he keeps up the the facade of it the whole the whole film i mean it's it's something neat, but he is definitely your I don't know. What is he supposed to be? Because, I mean, I I said in the first that he's out to pursue carnal pleasure. I know that from meta knowledge and outside sources. There's really nothing in the film to tell us that other than his brother talks about how he's, you know, he's just kind of a loser that drifts around, does whatever he wants and, you know, blows from place to place. I I don't know. How did you how do you know that he is a sadomasochist other than the fact that, you know, what he winds up uh, having done to him?
0: In the, in the movie, it kind of almost comes off like he's a drug user. Like right. maybe he was like trying to like – he found out about something somehow and he was trying to get this to get a new high. But if you read the book or the uh, novella, it's very clear that he is – he's basically like a man whore. I mean he he went around. He did everything you could possibly do and he's just bored. He's nihilistic now. And he's just he's he's just kind of like a lonely wanderer around the world and he's just trying to find this like new way of excitement he's just like a like a drug user who's you know just got such a high tolerance that he's looking for something new and that's when he discovers the lameman object and he goes into it and opens it up and that's when the cenobites come out in the novel and basically the cenobites tell him you know hey we're here we're gonna give you pleasure but They they give them the option in the book. It wasn't like, hey, we're here, we're taking you. It was they came out, Frank, you know, we'll give you this unbelievable, you know, experience, but there's no going back. Well, he finds out as soon as he agrees to it that they have crossed the, you know, like almost like a spherical sense where it's like, you got pleasure on one side and pain on the other side, Mm -hmm. and they've gone past that pleasure point where it's gone all the way down pain, and it's done around so many times that they don't have a concept of either what pain or pleasure is anymore, that it's it's one and the same to them.
1: You know, the thing I like about this is that none of this is explained in the film at all. Like, they don't even bother with it. And I always say, you know, horror films start to fall apart when there's too much explanation for why things are the way they are and particularly why the, quote, evil or the at least the malevolent force is the way it is. And I like the fact that a lot of this is just a mystery and we're left to figure it out. And I think a lot of that is Clive Barker. I, he lives and works in a reality and a plane that, Normal people just don't exist on and get, and I don't think he made this film for anybody but people like him to be able to understand. I I really believe that. I mean, this is a The, film the, the films,
0: the, the films told in broad strokes. it Completely is. I think it's where it's better. Like, I like if even in the novel they really don't come out and say it. It's stuff that you kind of pick up throughout the whole novel and you kind of put together and you realize what was going on, but. You can you can pick and choose. I mean, you can you, you you can sense to what this is all going on, but it's not to, it's not talked down to you, man. It's not like mm-hmm. George Lucas telling us what the force <laughs> is. I mean, yeah. in, in in the Phantom Menace, it's kind of just like you're entering this world, and they're not going to slow down to explain it to you.
1: Well, so you got you got to
0: catch up, and yeah. you know, you, you, it's up to you to figure it out if you want, and if you don't figure it out, you don't figure it out.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'm praising it for that. I like that touch. I really do. I think it makes the film stronger and it makes the story more interesting to watch because it gives it rewatchability because you want to go back and see can you figure any of it out before it reveals because they'll tell you everything you want to know in the thing and everything you need to know to be able to, to work in the story. But you know, the fun of rewatching these films is, is to see, can we, you know, put it together before Kirstie does or, or anything like Mm -hmm. that. And that's the kind of the cool bit. And I guess that's the time it's time to talk about Kirstie a little bit before we get into the film proper. Uh, Ashley Lawrence, I don't know her from anything, but the fact that she's in this and I know that she's in the sequel too. Uh, What'd you make of her? I got to tell you, I liked her. She had this kind of cute, spunky thing going on. She kind of reminded me of Sarah Jessica Parker from the eighties. She was that kind of chick. It seemed like.
0: Yeah. She kind of reminded me of almost like an Alyssa Milano from uh, who's the boss. There so. you go. That too. Yeah. So I really liked her. I mean, you watch a lot of these movies like Nightmare on Elm Street, and you got uh God, what's her name? Oh, Heather Langenkamp, her. Nancy Thompson. She is yeah. so bad. She's it horrible. is just like it, it, it is nails on a chalkboard bad. <laughs> yeah. Or even the Friday the Thirteenth. They're so bad. And she, none of those. Plays Kirsty is yeah. actually, you know, she's a pretty good actress. I mean, she's cute. She's you know and plays the character really well, and she's very easy to watch in the movie. I mean. Mm-hmm. As compared to other movies where it's like oh yeah they got her she's attractive but man she can't act or oh yeah you know she's a good actress but she has not much to look at i mean she's kind of got both aspects here and i really enjoyed her character throughout the whole thing and you leave her character too i mean she's a very nice daughter to her to her father and stuff like that and you mm-hmm. understand that you know yeah it's a stepmom that's the reason why she doesn't want to move in with because she doesn't want to be in a house with this new woman who's going to try to play her mom but she's also at that age where she's trying to find herself so it's just like and it's a very easy character to relate to
1: yeah. And I, I liked her too. I'll say this, you know, the only other horror main female I would say is, is better is Jamie Lee Curtis in the Halloween films. I think she's a, a standard bearer in that. And I'm not even putting Ripley in the same category anymore. Even though I mentioned alien earlier, I don't think that's the same kind of thing, but I, I do think um, Jamie Lee stands out, but she's, this girl's right up there with her. And I, I like the Kirstie character too. You know, we talked about how the the perspective shifts, from Larry to her through the film. And I think it's a good transition because we care about her and we care about her plight. And it's, it's also interesting to note that Julia, I think her initial motivation for killing for Frank essentially is because he sees Kirsty and is like, bring me her. And she doesn't want that to happen to her, even though she doesn't necessarily get along with her. Right. I, I don't know. I just think it's neat that everybody in the film seems to want to take care of Kirsty, even the Cenobites. Like at some point they bother with her, which is unique for bad guys. You know, they usually, they just come in and do what they want. Right. But they bother to listen to her plight.
0: Yeah. I just think, I don't know why. I mean, I guess it's just kind of a change mm-hmm. from what we normally see. Cause normally it's, they're the victim. They're the ones, you know, that are kind of in a circumstance that they can't control where she's kind of an outsider in the beginning. And, Kind of, you know, when she kind of gets brought into light, you know, as it transitions over to be more of her movie, especially when she calls the Cenobites and everything like that. I mean, it's kind of nice to see that, you know, she actually, instead of just running upstairs to get away from them, like in so many slasher movies, that she's actually able to use some type of negotiation with them and actually use her brain. Yeah. To be able to get out of the situation. I guess it was just a nice refreshing thing to see in a movie like this or in what in a movie it's considered to be a slasher movie, but we've already stated it's it's not a slasher
1: movie. No, not not at all. Not at all. In fact, I I will put it to you to sort of think about as we go through the discussion the rest of the way here what this movie actually is, you know, and what kind of horror movie it is. But let's talk about it here. The opening scene is a real grabber. We have Frank buying the, the box from The Little Chinese Man, right? And – you know, he keeps laying out the hundred dollar bills. I couldn't get over like how much like grease was underneath Frank's fingernails. I was like, what did he have to do to get that? I don't even want to know. You know, it's just, <laughs> I don't know what that's supposed to tell us about the guy. But obviously, he has no vanity, right? And and then we see him in the you know the room with all the candles, and he's playing with the box. And I, I mean, we're thrown right into this thing, and I don't know. I found that to be a real interesting introduction to us before we get to the first fish hook landing in him.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really strange opener because it's, you know, mm-hmm. you start out and he gets the box, and then only he's sitting around with candles, and he's you don't even know what's going on, and also the hooks grab him, and that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple of, ashes of that with the centibites, and boom, that's it. And the weird part is, too, it's like, you see the centibites right away, but you don't see them again for another hour. <laughs> in yeah. So it is, kind of a, it is kind of a strange, you know, opening for this whole movie, especially when you consider, you know, how Pinhead's supposed to be some type of horror icon, but, uh, no, I really I really I really like the I really like the beginning because it is an attention grabber because it gets you right into it.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it gets you through. And let's talk about the effects here. I mean, this lives in a different kind and time of film when CGI and computer effects were very limited. There really were none for, for replicating humans. So this is all, you know, mocked up bodies of people that get torn apart and flesh effects and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's makeup and stuff. What did you make of the special effects, particularly all the gore effects?
0: Um. Well, the hook going into the flesh, I mean, it did look kind of rory or Play-Doh-y or whatever. It didn't look real, but we'll get into it in a little bit. But there is one effect in this movie that I think is just phenomenal when it happens, and it makes you kind of wonder how they did it on such a small budget. But yeah, I mean, I mean, they they are what they are. I mean, this is eighties fla eighties fair, and it's low budget fair. But I think for what they accomplished with it it's pretty phenomenal.
1: Oh, I I'll say now the fact that they did this on a million dollars is amazing. And now part of that is aided by the fact that 90% of this is in this house. So it's this one set where they can work. So that limits some of it, but they do a lot with very little here and I I'm impressed with it. No doubt. I'm I'm with you. I think it looks pretty good for its time. And I'm one of these people too, that because of when I grew up, I, I can appreciate the practical effects. I really think that that, makes a film work a lot of times when you get good practicals. And the one thing I do remember everyone saying about this film when I was growing up and and didn't watch it or whatever was how incredibly gory it is, that it's just the goriest thing you've ever seen. And I have to say for the time period that it came out, this was definitely pushing some boundaries. I'm surprised it came out in this time because this is when the MPAA was seriously, Seriously
0: strict about the kind of violence that it would allow
1: into a theater.
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, this is almost like kind of like Saw level stuff, and you know, maybe this even was kind of an influence for Saw as far as it just being completely torture. The film. I mean, that's the whole the whole plot is based around torture. So it it is it is very weird to think that you know this movie did come out in the '80s. I mean, you think about like Friday the Thirteenth. You know, like remember like Part Two, how they had to like cut it down, and then you watch it today too, and it's just like that barely got an R i mean that would get a PG13 today you know he cut out a cu- couple boob shots and that's a PG13 movie i mean exactly. you see worse on the walking dead and also you know yeah i mean this movie is head and shoulders more gory than friday the 13th or even you know nightmare on elm street you know sans maybe to be you know seen in the bed with the blood shooting up you know
1: right i and i'll say this too this film it atmospherically feels a lot like Nightmare on Elm Street, particularly Nightmare on Elm Street parts three and four, which were out around the same time this one came out or re- really just thereafter. But I mean, it feels like that. It has that, I don't know, that same dynamic. And the other thing that I noticed, too, and it, you get it right from the beginning here, is the soundtrack to this thing is amazing to me. I love Love Christopher Young's score here. This orchestra—it's very ominous, but it's kind of classic too. It's got this classic universal monster kind of feel to it, doesn't it?
0: Oh, definitely, definitely. It's a very, very good score. And you know, let's even get into it. I mean, we get into more like the the plot of the movie is Julie and Frank, or not Frank, uh, Julie and Larry move into this house where Frank used to live there he did they literally said he squatted there and that he had to run out of there to kind of avoid the police because he's probably up to some shenanigans or something and yeah um as he's moving in he cuts himself on a nail and the blood hits the floor of the room where frank was taken and as you see a few you know scenes later a few minutes later is that that blood somehow allows frank to re-enter our reality and just the music of the scene of frank being resurrected is amazing and back to the special effects this scene is just phenomenal of his body being rebuilt i mean this is something of comparison to you know werewolf in london oh yeah just you know you get this transformation scene and it's just like yeah you know it's not like it's not it's not realistic but it's just impressive how it looks and it's just like I mean, today, that scene would cost like, you know, a couple million dollars to make. And you think, you know, this movie was made for a million dollars or less. And it's just a great scene. It just shows some craftsmanship and some love that goes into these type of movies.
1: The thing that impresses me most about that scene, that resurrection scene, is like his spinal cord connects to his cerebral cortex that connects to different parts of his brain and puts himself back together. I mean, it's. It's a gruesome looking scene, but in the other hand, I'm amazed at the level of detail they went through to do this. And I don't know if that's in the book or not on that, but I, Barker clearly had a vision here that he wanted to show that down to you know every fingernail coming back into place as Frank reforms himself throughout the the film here but yeah I you know I like the opening too and I want to say this another reason I think I feel for Larry is I, I've moved a few times and I have had almost the same injury he had <laughs> where I cut myself on a nail and it just I was bleeding just profusely for you know five minutes and realized what I had done it was oh it's terrible and I think the funny thing we Get about Larry, and it's the juxtaposition of, to him and his brother. Frank has gone to such extremes to, you know, push the pleasure pain principle to the edge, right? And Larry's about to pass out because he's cut his hand. <laughs> you know, it's just totally different people, but it makes me feel
0: for old Larry. Oh, definitely, definitely. It just shows the type of different men they are. I mean, these guys are completely on opposite sides of the spectrum when it comes to like who they are. Where you know, Larry seems to be more the. You know, like like we were talking about, more of the safe guy, a little bit, a little bit of a you know 80s yuppie. No, not even a little bit. He's a 80s yuppie where, you know, Frank is kind of like the dirty fonz. You know. <laughs> I said the dirty.
1: the dirty the dirty funds who who likes to
0: kill so yeah this this is what this is what fonzie'd be like if he was raised (laughs) in a worse neighborhood and probably had a couple stds
1: let's talk about this because another thing this film doesn't bother to explain is how the blood resurrects him or gives him the way to find his way out of this dimension he's in i mean i kind of got the sense and you can tell me if i'm wrong but I i got the idea that like his torture or whatever from the Cenobites was an ongoing thing. It wasn't just one time that happened to him. It was like over and over again, they would put him back together, then rip him apart with all those hooks and stuff that it was, that was a constant level of torture for him.
0: Yeah. I mean, you always kind of hear like the old biblical tales or whatever, like what hell is. And it's just re- painful repetition mm. over and over again. And I think that's kind of what this is. It's some type of reputation, re- repetition of, the torture and pain that they're giving him and stuff and how the blood resurrects him i i don't know but you but you buy it you go yeah. with it i mean you go with it just the same way that you're going with that this box opens up this other dimension and that you know there's a guy with pins in his heads and they can control hooks and chains i mean you just kind of got to go with it i mean it's not yeah. like i mean it's almost fairy tale logic and but it works i mean it works because it all fits within within the theme of it it's not it's, it's not it's not like they came in there and all suddenly, Julia, you know,
1: did a seance or something. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah did something or read a book and came and brought him back. I mean, it all fits with what's going on in this film. So I didn't have a problem with it at all. And it just led to that scene, which is fantastic. No, yeah, I don't have a problem with it either.
1: Matter of fact, I think it's it's good that it's not explained again. It's one of those things that's better off that we don't know it and i think the the way it comes about again is a great set of effects and i love her reaction to it she's repulsed but yet she can't look away even though he's telling her don't look at me like this you know don't look at me you have to go get me more blood you know and all this stuff and she goes for it you know again because he sees kirstie and she doesn't she doesn't want that to happen to her so she agrees to go along with this thing and i thought wow I mean, what a what an odd twist because i mean this becomes like she kills in the night a lifetime movie special all of a sudden yeah it was
0: almost <laughs> kind of lifetime style with a lot of the stuff but it works i mean you you buy her it's not that like he also only comes back and it's just like oh my god i can't believe she's turning on her husband and going to do it because you believe it because of how she's acted so far in the movie. Right. Right. The way that she's been, she's been completely so disinterested in her husband and just like these almost like orgasmic type, you know, fact you know, flashbacks that she has through the whole movie where it's just like, she's thinking of Frank and everything like that. So you, you, completely buy it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And That's the thing is we already know her history with Frank. They've laid it out with us. So we get her motivation. It's pretty, pretty clear from the start that you know, she wants him back for whatever she has to do. Yeah, to she'll, kill, she'll
0: to. kill to get him back. Yeah, I mean, and she and she done. literally
1: does. And I like how the more she, she kills and the way she changes in it, like the first time she's just totally repulsed by it. And I love how she's standing at the door and that little thing crawls out on the floor and it's like, don't look at me, and as it drags the corpse away. That was one of the creepiest scenes in the film. I thought, man, that is pretty good. It's not scary, but it's unnerving. And it's it's just it's and it's shot in such a way too, Nick, that you can't really see what's happening, but you know what's going to happen,
0: you know. And it's yeah, um... you know that he's doing some type of like almost like a like a spider, you know, that's you know paralyzes prey and it's sucking its innards out. You know? Yeah, it's, it's very something like that. You can tell what's kind of going on without seeing it. What's going on? And I think you kind of you 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 hit the word so perfectly, unnerving. And that's what this movie is. It's just unnerving with everything. Yeah, and I think it's not even unnerving with almost the way that what's being shown on the screen, but that someone came up with this idea.
1: again I go back to what I say Barker clearly exists on a plane none of the rest of us want to be on and he doesn't care that we're not there like he's he's just going to make his film and just be as weird and strange as possible and the fact that he got people to give him a million dollars to do this is amazing to me when they I mean because people I mean a lot of hands had to have read this this was not just some fly by night studio I know they had had a, a background with Roger Corman but they had put out a lot of other stuff that had been successful at this point so there's I mean, there's a reason that uh, he was able to convince them that this vision was something that would sell. And that's what's amazing to me, Nick, is that New World Pictures, which is now just, you know, absorbed somewhere into the News Corp uh, a place, you know, the same studio that gave us uh, you know great stuff from the 70s and like screwballs and your know, death stalker and all that kind of stuff. Those cheesy films and then went on to give us. You know some neat stuff like you know Children of the Corn you know and and that kind of thing would go for this film is is amazing to me but I again it is right up their alley thinking about it like that so I don't know I I thought it was really cool and and as unnerving as it is and stuff I still I want to watch it like I can't turn away from it and that's the the cool part of this because the more uh, that happens like I keep asking myself well what happens when Frank is totally back and because these bodies are piling up like people are going to eventually notice this right this woman comes into a bar she leaves with somebody and they never see those people again eventually the cops are going to come
0: right definitely i mean they're they're going to eventually be found out but i think that's they're not even worried about this at their point at this point they just want to get him back and then you know the plan is to kill larry and then for them to get out of there
1: I think I think you're right. I think the plan is to take everything that he's got, leave on, and then and go and and be together in you know, paradise or whatever. But and the thing about this is that we know he keeps saying, "I've got to reform myself before the Cenobites realize I'm gone." And I like that that idea that he got away from them while they weren't looking and they haven't realized he's gone yet they're torturing so many other souls that just one being gone wouldn't be noticed i, I don't know that was kind of sinister and sort of I, it's neat it was a neat twist to the story
0: well it adds to the fact that you know that there's more of this going on that he, he's not the only one that these things are you know doing this to other souls and he was able to get an escape but he's also terrified of them and that they're kind of like the, the background force throughout the whole film is that, you know, he's doing these awful acts and being the villain because he's he's scared of his villain, not the film's villain, but his villain. You know, it's his almost like Vader doing the bidding of the emperor or it's kind of like he's doing a lot of stuff that he's doing because of his fear of the emperor.
1: Uh, no, I agree with you. I think that's exactly what, what Frank's doing, but he's also trying to get away because he he crossed that line, like you say, and he knows that's not anywhere he wants to go back to that that's just not something he can stand. He wants to, he values life too much at this point, I guess. And so that's why he keeps hiding. But of course as things will turn out, Kirsty gets entangled in all this mess. And I want to talk about something that happens. We see her at her job at the pet store, and I felt like I was watching Rocky for a second. It was sort of the same thing. But she bumps into this homeless guy who sort of followed her around earlier, and he's got long hair and all this stuff. And he picks up just a pile of crickets and starts eating them. And it was one of the weirdest non sequiturs I'd ever seen. I was, I mean, I thought, please let that pay off. And of course, eventually it does, but I don't know. Does it? I mean, that's the other question.
0: Yeah. That's just one of those weird scenes. I mean, I guess it does kind of pay off in the end of the movie when you fi- figure out that, you know, he's one of the, the keepers of the laminate object or laminate object. And, yeah, it's just one of those strange, strange. It's just an atmospheric thing, I think, that kind of happens where you're just trying to put the audience more on, uh, you know, trying to make them more unsettled. No, I agree.
1: And it is unsettling. It's weird. It's one of those, like, ugh, moments, you know, and you jerk away from it. But Kirsty, as it turns out, starts following Julia because she realizes something's up, right? And she catches Julia bringing a man into the house and then hears her. I don't know, a killing one, right? And she goes in there and interrupts Frank's feeding time, which is really creepy. And I love her first interaction with Uncle Frank. And I love how he's standing there like, it's just me. I don't have any of my skin on, but it's me.
0: (laughs) I mean, in a way, I mean, a lot of this movies almost kind of reminded me of Bram Stoker's Dracula, where you kind of got Dracula in a castle and, you know, people are getting fed to him or getting brought to him and he's feeding on him and stuff. I mean, that's almost kind of what's going on here with Julia, and the scene where you know Kirsty finds him and stuff like that—it's—it's it's a good scene. I mean, he, she—you know—he's got this weird like. It just shows how fucked up Frank is. I'm just gonna say it. I mean, it's just like he's making a pass at his niece. Well, you kind of got the sense that that
1: was what he wanted before too. That not only did he want her skin and stuff, but that he kind of had a thing for her. Because and because he's played this game with her. I mean, he has this line, right? Come to daddy, which is, I mean, that is just messed up. (laughs) It's just weird to hear your uncle say something like
0: that. It's weird for anybody to say, I don't care. You always hear it a lot with people like, no, that is a strange thing. You, you, you mm-hmm. don't, don't don't confuse your father with some sexual things. That's fucked
1: up. <laughs> yeah, this is very very weird. I mean, I, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I did not
0: uh,
1: <laughs> I did not want to go there. So I just I was not ready for that at that
0: point. But but it fits his character because it's just like you just know that he's like he's like the the living version of Quagmire from Family Guy. <laughs> it's just like he's just this dirty 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 guy but
1: I love the fact that in the middle of this she winds up getting her hands on the puzzle box and throws it out the window and goes and winds up in the hospital and she solves the box and then come the Cenobites and I you know I don't want to talk about them in the opening because this is their big scene where they all come in together here you have the big one the butterball you have the teeth chattering one you have the woman with her neck open and then you have pinhead the leader right and I love this little speech he lays on her. You know, you <laughs> opened the box. We came. That's what the box is for. And all this stuff he's telling her about what they are. And, you know, we're, we're angels to some, demons to others. We explore play, pain and pleasure on a different level. Realm and I, I don't know. I and I love how he tells her to, you know, shut up and don't waste all your suffering on crying. It's such a good waste of suffering. I don't know. I just I, all these lines here are just amazing to me.
0: Honestly, you can just you can just pick and part this you could pick apart the whole scene and use them for drops, man, because almost <laughs> everything is just kind of like a catchphrase in its own. I mean, it, it's great everything that he says here and I just I love his voice. And oh, it's just like yeah.
1: Doug Bradley, yeah, it's amazing.
0: And it's not even like he's like a pissed off monster or something like that. He's just matter of fact. And it's just like, I love it where it's just like, you called us. We're here. You know,
1: the thing I love about it, though, is the fact that unlike every other horror slasher, you know, creatures or whatever, the this one can be reasoned with on some level, because Kirsty is totally innocent in this. And she says, well, you've done this before. And he's like, yes, of course. And she's like, but you did this to someone named Frank. And that's when the female's like, oh yeah. And like, they remembered him. And then she lays it on him. Well, I, he got away from you and I can take you back to, and so you can get him back. And it, you can tell they're like, excuse me? And then they, they really go for it. I don't know. I thought that was really cool that she was able to bargain with them. Like that never happens. You can never do that with Jason or Freddie or Michael Myers or, you know, Leatherface or hell, even Chucky, you know, you you can't do that with the leprechaun. You can't do that with any of these, man. You didn't do it with the critters. I mean, I I like the fact that you can reason with these
0: beings. And that's what I think separates pinhead is he's, intelligent. I mean, you can tell there's a brain in, in him. I mean, you know, if you could say about Freddy Krueger, but he's just more like psychotic crazy, but this guy is just very he's very calculated. You know, he he's hes a chess player. He's not checkers, you know. He's just very, very much to matter of fact and he's just, you can reason with him, but you gotta have something to reason with him with. He's not dumb. Exactly. Um, and I like that she she's able to get out of it, but it's not like, oh, she got away and she's free. It's like yeah we'll let you go, but we can pop up anytime we want,
1: yeah, now that yeah. we know you and if you don't deliver what what's his line with that we will tear your soul apart or something like that, which I thought man that is that's messed up
0: yeah and and I, and I like it too, I think it kind of shows more of what Penenza about' I think that now that he's you know that she's called upon him, he can go after her now anytime that he wants, you know he can go get her and stuff like that she he's she's opened up that portal to him. And I think that kind of just shows more of what these creatures are about. They're not about like world domination or killing every you know camper they can. It's just like they're workers. I mean, it's just like they're very much to the point. It's like, yeah, you know, you 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 die. They're almost like nine one one. You know, someone like like a medic. You know, it's like you dial nine one one, they come. It doesn't matter after after you dial that last one, they're coming for you. There's no going back when you dial nine one one. They're coming for you
1: and that's kind of what it is. Yeah, clearly they play rough, uh, rougher than 911, but you're right. They're not a joke and that's that's the point and that's what we like about them. But it gets us to the climax here and we see Frank and uh, Julia back at the house and they both know look they got to do something. Kirsty's going to bring trouble. You got to let me go ahead and take Larry, right? And we don't see it happen, but when Kirsty shows back up, there's Larry but Andrew Robinson's got a different look on his face, like you can see the blood around the nape of his neck and stuff like I knew immediately that that was Frank had torn Larry's skin off and was now wearing
0: it. Yeah, he had a smirk on his face. you kind of knew that it wasn't him, and you know she goes up there and she sees the body you know it's skinned and everything like that, and she's believing that you know that is Frank and everything, and then all suddenly Pinhead shows up. Yeah, and I love
1: how he's like, "Who did this?" <laughs> like, no, 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 this is not your job; it's ours. And I, I love how they're like, they, the reason they're mad is he got away, and he's performing with powers that are not his to perform with, right? That's how it goes.
0: Yeah, that's I, that's how I took it. I think that they were they they knew that wasn't Frank, and I think that they were pissed off that it was just like who did this, who's who's trying to fool us right now? Exactly. You know? Yeah, Who's you know?
1: who's someone is not what they're supposed to be. And I love in the process of chasing Kirstie around, the, the Frank Larry thing stabs Julia and is like, sorry, babe, and he drains some of her life force and just leaves her for dead in the hallway.
0: That was pretty messed up. Well, it just shows the type of guy he is. I mean, Julia was so stupid thinking like, oh, he loves me, he loves me, and it's just kind of like, no, he's, he, he's a bad boy. I mean, down to it. He's like, he does not like you. And then you just showed her right there. He killed you. And he didn't even bat an eyelash at it. He's just like, yep, okay. You're dead. I'm going after her still, <laughs> you know.
1: Exactly. Yeah, he wants Kirsty, And that's when it's really home to me that this is something he really wants and wants her. And so it's, you know, it's all that creepy incestual stuff. But I love in the end how it shows up that he's up there and essentially he gets, you know, set up by her to confess, you know, and then the Cenobites show up and are like, excuse me. And I love how they start ripping him to pieces. And it is, you talk about one of the weirdest scenes, man, is when he is all chained up, stretched apart and being pulled
0: apart before she runs out of the place. You see him with like the chains and his face is almost like pancaked out because it's just – tearing his, you know, skin apart. I mean, he's pulling it right off the bone. Oh, yeah. And, it's, yeah, and it's just like, you know, he's got the classic line at the end where he just goes, Jesus wept.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then he just gets ripped to shreds. And I love how how the Cenobites are telling her, this is not for your eyes. You need to go away. And, but she still sees it. And of course, it, you know, it drives her nuts. Of course the house is in, insane. And as I said, in the plot summary, convenient boyfriend or whatever shows up to help her get out of the thing. And then they're having a bonfire later. And I love, she throws the box in there, but then the vagrant shows up. Now, this was the weird part to me. Cause I thought, what is this? And I had a flash in my head of another Clive Barker story. Have you ever seen Candyman?
0: I have a while ago.
1: There is a scene in Candyman that is almost directly this, what the vagrant does without the bone dragon. That doesn't happen in Candyman, but it's still somebody walking well, is that into like the a bonfire, fire.
0: I think where he yes. walks. Yeah.
1: It's that same thing. It's very weird.
0: Well, Candyman's a weird movie.
1: But... <laughs> it is, but so is this one. and it, it ends even weirder because I thought, okay, everything's done. She's going to destroy the box at the end, but they, they leave us hanging with it, right? And my question to you is, did they know that there was a sequel potential here? Were they looking that far ahead, or did they just want to go ambiguous with the end?
0: I thought it was more like the end of Halloween where it's just ambiguous. I mean, the original intention that it's like, it's still out there someone else is going to eventually find this thing and bring this upon themselves again.
1: Okay. But, I was curious about that. Cause I, like I said, I didn't know, but it does leave it open to that uh, potential, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it was probably a double-edged sword there. I mean, it was probably to leave it ambiguous, but also, you know, could be continued.
1: Right. So I, I don't know. I thought it was, like I said, I thought it was a very strange way to end what had been a, a pretty straightforward film so far but uh
0: yeah it's it's weird with like the bone dragons and, and where yeah. were they at the end I mean where was that I don't know was it in the backyard that's what I was going to ask you but, but there's like a hospital in the background and stuff and the location
1: literally... of this film is is a complete mystery to me again I don't know if we're in England if we're in America I have to t- well, I don't know where we are like I really have
0: weird field fires everywhere in England I don't know I've never <laughs> been there before so either of I possible it's possible
1: if any of our our listeners are from you know across the pond let us know because we don't know i mean i'm i'm curious too i'm not sure what the point of it is but it's very weird like i say it's a very weird ending to what had been a weird film
0: because at, at first i actually i thought it was the house that they waited around for it to burn down but it was like Dude, that would take a long, 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 long. Yeah, that house? Yeah, that house
1: was huge. I mean, that would, and someone would come. Someone would come to put that out.
0: Yeah, and then from what we see in, you know, part two is that, you know, a lot of the movie takes place back in the house. So, obviously, that house didn't burn down.
1: Right, right. It just gets abandoned. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where they were, but it. Like I said, it was a very weird ending to what had been a weird film. So I guess we're at the point of the podcast, though, where it's time for me to ask you, what's your pleasure, Nick, and your popcorn ratings for
0: Hellraiser? For me, I am going to give it a large popcorn. I think this is one of the better movies that we've reviewed. Uh, It's a very strange movie, but strange in a good way. It's a movie that sticks with you for the rest of your life, and it's a movie that if you haven't seen it, but you know you're kind of aware, like the the pinhead image and stuff like that, and kind of what his reputation is, it'll completely take you off guard because it's not what you think. Where you don't you have this guy who's kind of a poster boy, you know, bad guy, but he's really not a bad guy in this movie. I mean, not a bad guy in the sense that he's going to come out and stalk you and kill you. But yeah, I mean, you, you add all that together, and it's just it's an original movie, a very original horror movie, one that we haven't seen, you know, one that. Something that's hasn't been seen like this before, it really hasn't been seen after. So to me, it's this very strong, large popcorn.
1: I'm going to join you in that too. I, I'm surprised too because I didn't remember liking this, having watched it. You know, many years uh, later than it came out and had been a few years ago, but going back to it this time, and I watched it twice for this review. I really enjoyed it. There's a lot here to hang on to, and I'm going to put a lot of it on the performances. I think Kirstie is a very likable uh, ingenue here and someone we can follow. I think Larry's someone you can feel for, and I think Frank and Julia are just fascinating. And moreover, the Cenobites are just, they're perfectly placed and peppered into this thing. And I wanted to know more. I'm glad that there is at least a sequel to this. We'll see if I feel that way after next week, but uh I'm with you, man. Large popcorn for me, and I'm curious to see where this thing goes next. Folks, thanks for joining us on this latest edition of Strip. You can go to continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies for more episodes in not only the Hellraiser retrospective, but all the other ones like we talked about earlier. We've done all kinds of films. You can find links to our Facebook and Twitter pages. Also find a link to our iTunes feed. And if you like the show, leave us a positive review on iTunes. It helps other people find the podcast. Until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Strip.
0: Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, ContinuousPlayPodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. Now you must come with us. Taste our pleasures. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.